know, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, he also wrote these great hymns that we don't sing anymore, and Allison put that to music. I just, I just love it. It's beautiful. If you would, turn in your Bibles with me in Isaiah chapter 4. Um, Isaiah chapter 4. Does anybody else have an alarm in their house? Does your alarm go off when you have tornadoes at 2 in the morning or 3 in the morning? Or is it just mine? Because this is the first alarm I've ever had, and I woke up last night at 2.30 in the morning, and I didn't get it to go off. It, every 15 minutes, I would hit, okay, close, right? I get it. Tornado warning till 4 in the morning. Close. And I go back to bed, and 15 minutes later, there it goes again. All night. I, I feel like I could just go to sleep right now on this. But does yours do that? No. Just mine. Okay. Isaiah chapter 4. I want to give you some background information and just encourage you. In your bulletin, in your notices, please take notes as the Holy Spirit leads you. We, we try to give you plenty of room there. It's part of how you feed upon God's Word. Now, Israel, we've said in previous weeks, Israel has fallen in love with the idols and the worship of the nations. And though their sin, what Isaiah says, has beaten them black and blue from head to sole of their foot, they will not yet let it go. They still come to worship yet. They still keep all the feasts. They still come to Sabbath. And they still hold their hands in the air. And Isaiah says, you know, you pray with your hands in the air, yet your hands are red with guilt because of your sin. So in chapter 3, God says He will now take away from His people support and supply, like we talked about two weeks ago. And this is exactly what happens with the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Their invasion and their conquest, they took away all the support, meaning the leadership of Judah and Jerusalem, and they took them into exile. And then they took away all the supply of finances and gold and money in the country back to their own countries. And what they left was an absolutely decimated landscape with people who were very unqualified to lead, leading That's the loss. Here's the gain. Chapter 4 gives us the gain that comes through God's judgment. His people that are left, which he calls the remnant, they're conformed again to his will. They're transformed. They're changed. Scripture says they are walking again in holiness, which is always God's goal in the lives of his people. And then he gives this amazing promise here at the end that his presence is going to come down again upon his people in a way that it's never done before. So let's just read Isaiah chapter 4, starting at verse 2. The conclusion, this is the conclusion started at chapter 2, verse 1, ending here of God's judgment, the loss and the gain. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. 
When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Let's pray for our time. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless the reading and the hearing of your word for the spiritual growth and nourishment of your people now. God, and we recognize that that is a work of your spirit, Christ in us. Lord, warm our hearts as we listen to your word to worship, to know you. Help us behold and know the greatness of Jesus Christ to trust, love, and adore Him more as we leave here. We thank You for Sabbath rest, Lord, to come and to sit, to hear, to grow, to be nourished. And we pray that Your Spirit, Lord, would help us to behold the greatness of our Savior more now. In Jesus' name, Amen. You know, often the church can completely miss what God wants our lives to look like as Israel did as well. You say, what are you talking about? Israel and Judah put fences around certain areas of their life, and so everything in the fence was for the Lord. The Sabbath is for Him. The uh, religious ceremonies are for Him. But outside of that, then everything else is, it's all mine. He doesn't really care about that. Just, just the religious stuff, that's his. And then everything else is, is mine. Sometimes our ideas of Christianity are just like that, don't, isn't it? We view holiness as fencing off an area of action, generally, in our life and say, this is forbidden ground, this is for the Lord because I'm a believer. I won't steal. I won't punch anybody in the face anymore, even if they make me mad. I won't get drunk. I won't cheat on my husband or wife, and I'll go to church sometimes. There, that's, that's fenced off. That's my religion. And then oftentimes we fence off another area, and this is where Jesus has limited authority. We wrestle with him, don't we? Maybe our money. Maybe our relationships, our job, our marriage, dating, who we're going to date what we look at on the computer, and we wrestle. A little bit for him, a little bit for me. We go back and forth. And then we look at everything else as, that's my ground. I can do with it as I choose. And so what we do is we set up a life of sacred areas and secular areas for me. A very divided life. Thinking, surely I can have a little fun, I can do this for myself, as long as I give God that. My friends, is this how you view yourself? Is this how you live? Is this what your faith and your Christianity looks like? If God has saved you and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, there are no fences. He must be trusted in all areas of 
our life. And the result is a life that's full of knowing God, doing His will, which is called holiness, and walking in the joy of knowing Him. So I'm going to ask you, what areas in your life have been fenced off for, for God that you see this is, this is my religious ground in my life? What areas in your life do you say, well, this is where we go back and forth. You know, sometimes Jesus wins, sometimes I win. What I see on the computer at night, um, how I treat my spouse, what I do with my money. And then over here, the rest of it, that's, that's the big fence. That's my playground. That's, the rest of it's for me. When you say Jesus is your Savior and Lord, I'm a Christian. You are also saying there is one fence around my entire life. And everything inside of it belongs to Him. He is Lord. He's Savior. It's set apart, all of me, for His glory. Whether it's my fishing, my hunting, my cooking, the way I raise my children. There's one fence around all of it. It's all His. It's all His ground, committed for His glory. And it's all washed by the blood of the Lamb. Our job then is to continue to trust the king because we so often want to take little nooks back and change the fence. To trust him as sovereign and to trust his will. J.C. Ryle, the old Anglican bishop, years ago, he says this, the same fire that melts wax hardens clay. The same fire that melts wax hardens clay. And that's what we see here in Isaiah 4. Because of the absolute wickedness of God's people at the time, their kings even offering their children as sacrifice to the foreign gods. He has poured out judgment through the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and what we see is two results. Verse 4, he's washed away his filth. Verse 3, those who are left are walking in obedience and holiness to him. Now, he gives an amazing promise. He says his presence now is going to come in a very unique way. No longer will God's people go to a temple or tabernacle to worship. His presence will be upon The assembly, that's how he closes this section. This whole section is the promise that his spirit, he's going to come, he's going to do something quite amazing, quite unique. There's three things we want to see here. The restoration of the Lord, the goodness of God after the judgment. First, we'll start with a restored land. Look in your Bibles at verse 2 with me. Verse 2, a restored land. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors. Stop. Notice those words, in that day, the branch of the Lord. And so the question that I wrestle with all week is, what is the branch? Because often when we think of branch of the Lord, the first thing that pops in our mind is Jesus, right? The Messiah. But I don't think that's what he's saying here. He's talking about the remnant that's left, not a picture of the Messiah Jesus. You see, what is referred to here literally is a shoot coming off. 
And so if you can think of a tree that's been knocked over, that's what's happened to Judah here. And there's a shoot that's coming out of the root. And that's what he's describing. The remnant, the shoot that comes out that's left over his people. Now notice, it doesn't say, like it says in other places, a branch of David or Jesse. Meaning a person that comes from the family of David or the father Jesse. That's the branch of the Messiah that Isaiah and Jeremiah talk about, right? The branch of salvation that's going to come from the family of King David. Here, he just calls it the branch of the Lord because it's of the Lord. It's his saving them. Now, notice those two words that he describes, this people, this remnant that's left. Beautiful and glorious. Do you see that there in your Bible? Remember, before God's judgment, they were not beautiful and they were not glorious. They were drawn to the beauty and the glory of the nations. They glorified in themselves and their appearance. And now God has done such an amazing work in their lives that He says, you are beautiful and glorious. And holiness is what He's talking about. Now, His grace continues to their land. Look there in your Bibles with me. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survival of Israel. Now when I read this again and again, I have to ask, why the land? Why is God saying that their land is going to prosper here in such a way that the nations will come and admire them and honor them for their harvests and their fruits? Let me read to you Deuteronomy 7, verse 13 and 14. This is what it says. And because you listen to these laws, God's covenant. Think about this, God's covenant that he's made in Deuteronomy. Because you listen to these laws and keep them, the Lord your God will keep you and the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, he will bless you, multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb, now listen, and the fruit of your ground, your grain, your wine, your oil, the increase of your herds, the young of your flocks. You see, the reason this is here is the remnant will be of the Lord, and God will keep His covenant promises to them that He made all the way back in Deuteronomy to bless the fruit of their ground so that they will no longer be proud of their fine jewels and scarves and find honor in their high positions, but in how God has provided for them. This will be their pride and their honor. Look what the Lord has done to our land. Did you see this place when the Assyrians and the Babylonians finished? Now look at it. Wow, what an amazing God. And people will come and they'll say, did you see that place when the Babylonians finished with it? Now look at it. Now, I want to ask you, do you see the security of that promise? You see, he is telling them that even though they have nothing of the beauty and glory of the Lord, it's been taken away, it's been swept away like my backyard in this rain. It's all gone. I had a lake this morning. I almost got my fly rod out. Their land has been ransacked. And God is saying, you don't need to fear. God's covenanted with you. 
You will have plenty again. Your very gardens and harvest will be marveled at amongst the nations. The point is, God is faithful to the promises He's made to His people. And the more we are able to take hold of those promises of God by faith, the more we find security in our life. Andreas Prolos was a godly minister who lived in the time of Martin Luther. And Prolos went to a synod in Milan a long, long time ago, and he had a disagreement with the Pope at that time about should they declare another holiday. And Prolos thought, well, this will be quite a burden on the people. And so they had a bit of a dust-up and a bit of an argument. And the Pope is not someone you want to have a dust-up with because you're going to lose. And so he was fearful for his life on the way back. And so he stopped, and he bought a bow, and he bought a sword, thinking that he would protect himself, and then kept journeying the rest of the way home. And then he began to come under conviction. And he decided to throw away his weapons, and he committed himself and his cause and his journey to God and relied upon his promises more than a sword and more than a bow. He came home safely, and he died years later in his bed. Now, the point is not trust in the Lord and throw away your weapons or get rid of your alarm system, which I might want to do, and that's okay. The point is this. We all have those times when we ask, is God's promise for me enough? Is it enough for me to stand on and trust on? The gospel says you are a wild branch that has been grafted into the promises made to Abraham. That means all the promises given to Abraham and to his people, to you, according to the scriptures, are yes and amen. If you are a believer, you are the branch of the Lord grafted into the vine, which is the Messiah Christ. Now, we don't have to have the beauty and the glory of the world to be cared for, to spend all our time, our energy, and our effort chasing those things. Our concern must be to live a life that displays the beauty and the glory of Christ in everything that we do. To live a life before an audience of one believer while trusting His promises to provide the fruit of the land that I need for my daily life. Point two, not only does God restore their land, but he then goes on to restore their holiness. Look in your Bibles with me at verse three and four. Verse three and four in your Bibles. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment, by a spirit of burning. Notice he's, he's given a summation, isn't he? isn't he? This is the summary, verse 4, of the judgment that he's spoken of. The filth has been washed away. The violence of those who shed innocent blood has been removed. Now, look what's happened. You will be called holy. This is amazing. 
For someone who was so intertwined with the nations, even offering the kings, even offering their own children as sacrifices to the gods of the nations, now the nations will look upon them and say, they're holy. They're set apart. They're different than us. They live a different lifestyle. See, it's a radical transformation that he's talking about here. And then he goes on. He talks about that they'll be recorded for life. And you say, what does that mean? Well, in the ancient Near East, if you lived in a city, like a city like Dothan, then your name would be put in a log or recorded there as citizens of that city. And so what God's doing here is he's just simply saying, your name is recorded in my book of eternity. In other words, another way to say that is, you will be eternally saved. So the branch of the Lord... That is, those he has kept from judgment. They are beautiful. They're glorious before him because they've been living according to his will. They're faithful to the covenant. And he, too, is faithful to their land and their salvation. Now, what does it mean to live a beautiful and glorious life before God? And when you're not very beautiful like me, what does it mean to live a beautiful life before the Lord? That's a joke. You can laugh at that The answer here is holiness. Now, when I say holiness, often people have a very different idea of what I'm talking about. Several years ago, um, my daughter Adelaide, she's going to perk up when I say her name, yep, she ran a cross-country race. And so we got her ready for the race. We took off her backpack, changed the woolen uh, uniform that she was wearing, put on some running shorts, and she took off, and she did very well in the race, and so she qualified for the next race coming up. And so I looked at the girls in this race, and I thought, oh man, this is going to be tough. So I thought, I need, I need to be a good father here and help her. She took off like a bolt of lightning, out of the cannon. She came around, she was lagging a little bit, and so I knew I needed to help her, so I got her backpack, I filled them full of giant stones, and I said, Addie, Addie, come here! put it on it. I zipped it up. I said, away you go. She took off. Second lap. She came around and she was even further behind at that point. So, I just so happened to have a long flowing dress as you do. I grabbed that. I said, come here. I put it on her. All the way straight down. Her arms were like this. She took off. She ran the third lap. She came around. She was in the last place. She was tripping. She was falling. She had this huge burden on her back. And I said, stop looking at mommy for encouragement. Look at the laces. Watch your laces and go. She took off. She fell over into the ditch. And there we pulled her out of the ditch and took her home. And on the way home, she said, Daddy, what happened? I said, honey, the problem was You just didn't run hard enough. You see, often we see holiness as a race where God always wants us to just run harder while He is weighing us down with all the rules and stuff that we have to do. And we feel like we never run hard enough for Him. Holiness is when our heart and lives conform to God's will. 
It comes by a willingness to follow as the Holy Spirit leads us in our daily life. We are called, we are awakened, we are convicted, we are converted, all to one end that we may live a life of doing His will, which is holy in the world. God wants to see and He saved us to be a beautiful people here on this earth. Now, that doesn't come by pulling up our boots and doing better or running harder. Let me say it like this. If you are a Christian, then you are the branch of the Lord. Amen? And the grace to live a beautiful and glorious life, it comes from one place. It doesn't come from you. It comes from the vine that you are connected to by the Holy Spirit. The more you commune with Him and worship, the more ability you have to do His will, and that's holiness. And the more you try to do His will apart from His grace and His strength, the more you'll be like her with that long dress and that big backpack, and you'll see your father like me in that race, just weighing you down and telling you to go harder, but never giving you the grace or the ability to do it. Let me read you a quote from J.C. Ryle. He says this, Do you want to be holy? Then you must begin at one place with Christ. You will do nothing at all and make no progress until you feel your sin and weakness and flee to Him. He is the root and beginning of all holiness. Men and women sometimes try to make themselves holy and sad work they make of it. They toil, labor, turn over new leaves, make many changes, but they run in vain and labor in vain. Little wonder for they are beginning at the wrong end. They are building up a wall of sand. Their work runs down as fast as they throw it up. Do you feel this day a real desire to be holy? Then go to Christ. Wait for nothing. Wait for nobody. Linger not. In the words of the beautiful hymn, Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Naked flee to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. You see, that's where holiness starts. The beginning and the end of it. It's not me and my own strength. It's coming to Christ and worship and prayer and communion and drinking deeply of Him. And through Him, He gives me the ability to do God's will. Point three. To the branch of the Lord, God restores their land. He restores their holiness. And lastly, He restores and will restore the present. Verse five and six. And we'll close here. Verse 5 and 6. Then the Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Notice those words. Then God will create over the whole site of Mount Zion, that's Jerusalem, and over her assembly. So that's her people. Picture a tabernacle, a house of worship, where God's presence dwelt long ago by day, a cloud, by night, fire. And he led them. And his presence in the tabernacle, if you remember, Exodus 32 to 34, that range, 
It was directly over the tabernacle. It was over the ark where God dwelt with his people. And now what God is saying, he's given this amazing promise that his presence is not just going to dwell in a building. It's going to dwell over all the city, meaning all the people. God's presence is going to be there, not over an ark, not over a building. Now notice what he says there. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. You see, he's describing the tabernacle perfectly. No longer will God's presence be confined to a building, but God's presence will be upon God's purpose. You see, the main purpose of the tabernacle was the place where God dwelt with his people, and they came to worship. Now his glory would be with his people. Now what do we do then with verse 6, Rusty? Verse 6, let's close here. Notice that. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and shelter from the storm. How do you put together a tabernacle where God's presence is over all of his people? With a booth. It's a good question you have. Well, the Jewish Feast of Booths was also called tabernacles. You know why? It's virtually the same word in Hebrew. So, because the words are interchangeable. So what God's saying is, in the ancient Near East, if you were a herdsman or herdswoman, you would have a booth out in your fields. There you would go in the bright sun or in the worst of rains like we're having today, and you would hide, you would take shelter. And so what God is doing is He's promising, my presence will be upon you like, just like you are in the tabernacle. Not only that, It'll be like you are in a booth. It's kind of a play on words. Do you see that? Tabernacle and booth. That I will guard you. I will protect you. I will be your refuge. Don't worry. Isn't that awesome? Now, the question is, when does this happen? When does this happen? And the answer is, when the Messiah came. When the Messiah came. Do you remember in John 4? Do you remember when Jesus goes way out of his way to Samaria, those dirty Samaritans? And he goes there with his disciples and they go to get food. And he sees a woman at the well and he goes and he tells her everything about her life. You remember that? And she marvels at him. And she says, you're a prophet, aren't you? And this is what she says. Notice, verse 29. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people should worship. So which temple should we worship at? That's what she's asking, right? With me? Notice Jesus' response. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshiper will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship. Notice what she says. I know the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he's going to tell us all things. I who speak to you and the Messiah, Jesus says. You see, Jesus is explaining exactly what Isaiah promised, exactly what Jeremiah described. No longer will we worship at a temple, but now we will worship by the Spirit and the truth. And this is what the Father is seeking. If you are a believer... You're part of the assembly that Isaiah spoke of. You're part of the branch of the promise of God. 
He has given you His Spirit to dwell in you, just like Isaiah said would happen, to give you His presence and to give you the ability to do His will in all your life. And so what about those fences? What about those fences? A life that is beautiful and holy begins by saying there are no fences in my life. Some areas have been fenced to do my will, some I share, and some are all mine. His presence and His Spirit must lead all of our life, guiding you and giving you the ability to do His will. And when we do that, we will find is God begins a work of washing the filth away that no one sees. It's in our private fence and making all things beautiful. When we say, no more fences, it's all yours. Last thought. We do that with the full confidence that though I might struggle taking down some fences in my life, I can rest because my life is joined to Christ by faith alone. And I am accepted and I am loved in His sight, even if I struggle with fences in my life. God declares you beautiful in Christ, and then the Spirit begins a work of holiness which is making you beautiful in His sight. That's the Gospel. And this comes by grace through faith alone, doesn't it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just praise you now. Um, Lord, that you transform people, God. And we don't want to be a people with fences in our lives. Lord, and yet we all have them. We all have sacred areas where we think this is for the Lord. And then we have other areas and we say this is for my glory. And somehow, God, we know that those other areas that are for my glory is where we have the most sadness and the least joy. God, I pray right now that we would have a heart of repentance to tear down those fences and to surrender all things in our life to the glory of Christ and cry out, Lord, you receive glory in all these areas. Make all these areas in my life beautiful and honoring holy to you. And we do that while resting in the gospel truth that it is Christ alone, his righteousness that we are clothed in that makes us beautiful and accepted in your sight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.